Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am really excited to be talking about all things endothelial glycocalyx, uh, really one of the most important and intensely researched um, areas in human health uh, in years. So I look forward to doing a deep dive today, and I will be talking to Dr. Christine Burke. Uh, Dr. Burke is a board-certified uh, family medicine and sports medicine physician. She is also fully certified in functional medicine. She's the medical director for Help Your Diabetes Sacramento and has practiced the full spectrum of family medicine in California since 1997. Dr. Burke believes that the best medical care requires time, a trusting relationship, and a collaborative approach to achieve the most successful personal outcomes, good health, longevity, and a superior quality of life. She truly enjoys caring for her patients and strives to guide them to wellness and prevention, as well as carefully managing their illnesses and medical conditions. Dr. Burke, you sound like a wonderful functional medicine doc, and I just really look forward to talking to you today. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. Thank you so much, Kara. Thank you for the, the introduction. It's really a pleasure to be here with you today. And I also want to just tell folks, if you're interested, I'll have her full bio on our show notes because, you know, she's a teacher, she's an educator, she's just involved in a lot of really cool stuff in the medical world and, and in the functional medicine, medical world. So please take a look at that on our show notes. I, you know, I'm always excited to learn more about the endothelial glycocalyx, and I'm just really thrilled that we'll get to focus on it. It's you know, of the content that we produce here at um, drcarefitzgerald.com, this one has probably garnered the most, I would, I would say maybe a top five level of interest um, from the professional community, and people are hungry for this. So can you define the endothelial glycocalyx or EGX as it's abbreviated? Just tell us what it is. Yeah, so I think if we start at the high level and work our way down into the details, that helps to bring in some perspective. So for years, the research that's been looking at direct visualization of blood vessel flow, we've seen this little invisible layer that seemed to keep the blood cells from coming into direct contact with the vessel walls. And there were all kinds of theories about what that was or how that happened. Perhaps it was an electrostatic effect or some type of um, you know, a uh, reflective barrier. But as our digital image resolution got better and better and better, it could be seen that there was actually this layer of fine fibers, just a few microns thick, that creates an actual true physical barrier, really like a, a slippery non-stick gel-like layer that we now know of as the endothelial glycocalyx. And that nonstick layer has a hugely important role in keeping the contents of the lumen of the vessel, so the white blood cells and platelets from sticking to the arterial, to the arterial wall. And when we dive in a little bit deeper into the next layer, like what's it actually made of? So it's made up of all of these different 
um, polysaccharides, proteoglycans, glycosaminoglycans, glycoproteins, and they're all actually anchored to the endothelial cells. And that allows the fibers to sense the shear stress of the flow within the vessel. And so that creates a trigger for the production of endothelial nitric oxide. And we have this whole cascade of events that really come down to defining what is the health of the endothelium. It's absolutely extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. Around, you know, do you, do you know approximately the year that the technology was able to actually to, to perceive it? I think it was in the mid 2000s oh that yeah I think it was in the mid 2000s that it was very clear they've been there's been research on the endothelial glycocalyx for gosh probably 40 years now but it wasn't really visualized until about 20 or 25 years ago it's amazing to me it's extraordinary you know it's like the the human body never ceases to uh, reveal more. Uh, It's just a remark. Like, it reminds me of, you know, the major recent aha of discovering brain lymphatics, for example. And or, or, you know, certainly this is paramount to the work that you and I do in functional medicine, but really appreciating the microbiome and getting that it is really just a key fundamental central player in our health. Where would you say the endothelial glycocalus kind of falls with, with, you know, in thinking about some of these recent and important discoveries? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the discovery, uh, not only the presence of the endothelial glycocalyx, but the complexity of what it's actually regulating, that selective permeability within the vessel, harboring the extracellular superoxide dismutase so that it has an antioxidant role, um, regulating what gets through the endothelial surface, all of those, I think that the discovery of this is going to turn out to be one of the more important discoveries of this era, just like the yeah. microbiome, like you mentioned, it, yeah. it opens a whole nother world of understanding of how the endothelium has such an important role in vascular health and in health in general. Yes, yes, yes. It, it, it also brings to mind the blood brain barrier and, mm-hmm. you know, almost it's, it's almost like nervous tissue and it's sensitivity and, or the, you know, the gastrointestinal barrier. It's just really extraordinary. Um, but a lot of us, alas, you know, clinicians and patients alike, we're not getting this piece of information. We haven't quite integrated it into our thinking as, you know, clinicians in, in delivering care or as patients in wondering about it or asking about it. We still were focused on, you know, cholesterol, lipids, et cetera. And, you know, thinking about this, I, a friend of mine, I was at the gym the other yesterday. And, and of course, I'm sure this happens to you all the time. A friend of mine had just gotten his labs done and he wanted me to look at them. And he had this lipid panel, you know, LDL and HDL and triglycerides, like just in, and then a handful of ratios. Like I, I one of the 
probably oldest tools that we're using and one of the tools that is desperate for updating. And yet we're still leaning on that. And I said, well, first of all, you need to get an advanced panel. Like we really can't make good clinical decisions from this very limited data. You know, and this, I'm gonna guess that the panel came out probably in the 50s or the 60s and we haven't evolved our thinking. And so here we've got just this extraordinary potential of, of looking at the endothelial glycocalyx. And, you know, what are your thoughts, like bridging from this, this, you know, this old, this arcane cholesterol panel to, you know, moving into thinking about EGX and, you know, other, uh, well, I guess I'm thinking about labs, but just talk to me about this and, and where we need to go and where we are. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big can of worms, right? So yeah. I think you know, one of the things that's been really fascinating to me in, in my movement from practicing conventional family medicine into practicing primary care from a functional medicine perspective, and you know, we all know that that's about root cause and looking more upstream, but it's fascinating to me to have a conventional lipid panel and, and then the deeper dive into the advanced lipid panel and the number of times that the conventional panel is normal or near normal while there's a disaster behind the scenes in the LDL particle count and the, yes. you know, the, the, the density of the LDL, all of those different components that we have in the advanced lipid profile. And I love pointing out to people like, look, if we were only doing the conventional standard of care, this lipid profile, everyone would be telling you that your numbers look great. But yes. take a peek down here. And, and actually, this is where our looming disaster is. That's why for half of people, their first symptom of cardiovascular disease is sudden death. Yes, like, right. Right. Like we don't have a lot of opportunity to intervene if we're not looking for something before that happens. We're just agreeing that we're going to let half of people go from that. So I think part of that is part of what's missing from that conversation is inflammation. And, you know, we know in functional medicine that inflammation is kind of the, the root of all evil. And most people still think of cardiovascular disease from that cholesterol profile as or perspective as this progressive clogging of the pipes, if you will. But when you look at the data, only about 15% of cardiovascular events occur via that mechanism. The other 85% happen because there's plaque, vulnerable plaque that ruptures and then a clot forms in the vessel. And inflammation plays a pivotal role in that scenario. We'll now take that a step further. And now we understand part of what makes that vessel wall vulnerable to that plaque deposition in the first place. So we have an opportunity to intervene at an even higher level. And I think it also creates another way of explaining why these really important personalized lifestyle interventions that we work on with all of our patients, why and how those are so profoundly impactful in our health. Because if your vascular system, right, 60,000 miles of blood vessels, if that's not healthy, then the rest of your tissues and organs also cannot be healthy. And the vascular system can't be healthy unless the endothelium is healthy. And the endothelium can't be healthy unless the endothelial glycocalyx is healthy. So it just becomes this domino effect that starts with the glycocalyx. Extraordinary. This is just 
we'll have to highlight in bold what you've just said. <laughs> it's just, but it's very, very elegantly stated and, you know, just a nice drill down and you bring us back to EGX. Um, and I'm assuming this is what you're, some version of this is what you're expressing to your patients. Yes, exactly. So part of part of what we do in our practice is an annual wellness assessment and focusing on cardiovascular risk since about half of the population succumbs to cardiovascular disease. We really focus on cardiovascular prevention. And in that process, we're looking at all of these components. We're looking at the advanced lipid profile. We're looking at the inflammatory markers, vascular inflammatory markers like LPPLA2, for example, or myeloperoxidase. Mm -hmm. Those are giving us a sense of the inflammation that's happening within the vessel wall. And also with myeloperoxidase in particular, the fragility of that fibrous cap, right? So we're we're looking at that vulnerable plaque with that necrotic core, and that plaque tends to have a very thin covering as opposed to a thicker fibrous cap when plaque is stable, because we have all manner of different types of plaque and plaque deposition that we can have. And so when we're looking at those individual components, now we can start to understand, well, what puts this part of the vascular system at risk? So we use CIMT, for example, carotid intimal medial thickness to assess the vascular age and then whether or not there's plaque forming in the carotids, because that has about an 80% correlation with what's happening in the coronary vessels and in the cerebral vessels. So we can get a good sense of the, the risk profile that's developing for any particular patient. And let now, me, oh yeah, go ahead. Can let me, I just wanna ask you a couple things because people are, you know, they're vigorously writing or typing to capture some of what you've said. Two questions, one, can you give us your, the panel that you're looking at um, just so I can put it on the show notes and people can see you're looking at, you know, LP, PLA and MPO and, and you're doing an, you're doing an advanced lipid panel. I'd love to just get some more granular details and then you're doing a CIMT and so forth, just so that I can let folks know what, what you do. And then from that, and I think this is where you were headed, um, talk to me about what you're seeing that's flagging you for EGX dysfunction. Okay. So we're looking at the, obviously the advanced lipids as we've discussed. So specifically in there, we're looking for the LDL particle number because that has the greatest predictive value for eventual um, major adverse cardiovascular event development in the future, much more so than total LDL. And as I was mentioning earlier, right? The number of times that I have a normal or near normal total LDL And, and massively abnormal LDL particle number. And if you know we want later, we could go into that a little bit more, but, but really we're looking at that advanced lipid profile. It's very important to also get the LP little a, mm-hmm. while that is predominantly genetically determined. And as yet we have not been able to really move the needle on that very much with lifestyle interventions, you know, perhaps niacin can help with that. But the mechanism by which one of the mechanisms by which LP little a 
leads to increased cardiovascular event risk, and in particular seems to be a, a big risk factor for stroke, is that it impairs the way that we can break down uh, fibrin and fibrinogen. And so that's one of the things by regulating coagulation within that endothelial glycocalyx, that's one of its roles is regulating coagulation. It hosts soluble fibrin. And so by addressing the endothelial glycocalyx, we can help to mitigate, hopefully we can help to mitigate some of the risk by understanding how LP little a creates risk and then what we can do to mitigate that by making the endothelium healthier. So that's awesome. one of the things I like to look for. Let me, let me just say, let me ask you right there because, you know, we've got exactly, you know, nudging LP little a is, it just really doesn't happen. It's pretty challenging. And therefore, mitigating risk is also what we've concluded as well. So when you see an elevated LPA, um, would you start using um, Arterosil with that? Would you, or would you focus on EGX automatically? Or would you look at the whole picture um, and evaluate risk, you know, based on all, your full workup? Boy, that's a tough question. I think kind of all of the above. I, I think, you know, we don't have data <clears throat> specifically looking at targeting the glycocalyx and LP little a or with right. what I use to target the endothelial glycocalyx, which is arteriosil, and we can talk a little more about that too. But just looking at it from a physiologic and mechanistic point of view, it absolutely makes sense to me that the more we can support normal and healthy function of the endothelial glycocalyx, the more opportunity we have <clears throat> to lower those risks. So yes, I would definitely be thinking about turning to Arteracil, one of the things that I use to address the, the EGX. We'd also be doing all of the things that we normally do from a personalized lifestyle perspective and some of the nutraceuticals that we may be using to help with vascular inflammation and some of the biochemistry involved in that and then looking at the person's whole picture because you know we know that one genetic abnormality doesn't necessarily you know it's not a it's not an inevitability that something's going to happen but the more of those that we have or the less equipped we are in one particular area of the physiology to be able to deal with clotting regulation for example then the higher that risk becomes so it's so it's each of right. those things in their own way Right, right, right. Yeah. So taking a full picture and then layering on, well, a full functional approach and then layering on additional interventions like um, Arteracel. I'm just, you know, we, we scratch our heads. I actually have a blog on LPA and interventions on my site. I wrote quite a while ago and I just feel like I should circle back and, and talk a little bit about the endothelial glycocalyx and Arteracel because it's, you know, it was the exactly what you do, you know, how do we approach this functionally and mechanistically and how can we support people who have really high LPA because it is difficult and there's not a lot we can do. Exactly. Uh, and I think too, with, you know, understanding that the inflammation and the oxidative stress or, you know, excess yes. reactive oxygen species are some of the catalysts for hypercoagulability. And we know that the EGX actually supports extracellular superoxide dismutase. So it's, yes. it has a very important antioxidant role. So you can imagine, I like to imagine the EGX as kind of this kelp forest. This is like the little visual that I have in my head. And it's this kelp forest, <clears throat> excuse me, that has an ecosystem 
And within that ecosystem, we've got the extracellular SOD, we've got, you know, maintenance of some of those coagulation factors like, you know, soluble fibrin, and maybe, you know, antithrombin, and we have um, uh, the, the protective, the physical barrier that the EGX creates. And so all of those play together. And so if you imagine the difference between this robust, fluffy, you know, ecosystem of this endothelial glycocalyx kelp forest yeah. versus one that's been stripped and maybe is, you know, denuded and it has bare patches or is, you know, very short and doesn't have a lot of real estate, if you will, to support that infrastructure, you're going to have a really different physiologic impact between those two things. So what is the, you know, who is the person with a sheared endothelial glycocalyx? Like, how are they presenting? And, and, and is there, I mean, there's obviously a continuum. So could some, mm -hmm. just talk to me about that. Yeah. So we don't yet have a way of, you know, clinically directly visualizing what's going on in the EGX. So we have to rely on in, indirect measures of that. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I like to look at is ADMA as a measure of okay. the ability of the endothelium to generate nitric oxide and to respond to vascular stress by being able to produce nitric oxide. So if we back that up, what are the things that create a dysfunctional or an unhealthy EGX? It's really all of the things that we focus on in managing lifestyle induced risk. So high levels of glucose and insulin, oxidative stress that we've just talked about, toxins, infections, stress, sleep deprivation, uh, sleep apnea. It's it is a very, very dynamic structure, and it is unfortunately very easily damaged, sometimes even within just a few minutes or hours of exposure. But luckily, on the flip side of that, it is also readily regenerated. And mm -hmm. in order, you know, just like regenerating any other tissue, in order for us to be able to regenerate that, we need the building blocks to regenerate it. And so that's where our tyrosyl, which contains this specialized sulfated polysaccharide called ramnant sulfate is a building block to make those fibers, the fibrils that create the EGX. It's uh, that's just, it's just really cool. It's really cool. <laughs> ADMA people, just to go back to that, that's asymmetric dimethyl arginine. And it's when it's elevated, that individual is not, is inhibiting nitric oxide production. Mm -hmm. So it's a useful marker and we can actually get it covered by insurance, I think pretty readily through um, Cleveland Heart Labs, right? Are they offering it through Quest, I believe? Yeah, yeah, they are. And in fact, I use that Cleveland Heart Lab in vascular inflammatory panel as a good profile. And that has the LPPLA2 and the myeloperoxidase. It includes the ADMA. And it also looks at um, microalbumin creatinine ratio, which is a measure. So it's interesting now because I've been doing those labs for a long time. And now to add in this layer of understanding of why those all reflect vascular health, it's lit literally each one of them is linked back to the EGX. So looking at microalbumin creatinine ratio, right, we're looking at protein leak across an unhealthy endothelium. And what what regulates that selective permeability, it's the EGX. 
We're looking at ADMA as a measure of the ability to produce nitric oxide. Well, what regulates the production of nitric oxide? It's the transduction, the shear stress um, assessment of the EGX that's transmitting that signal into the endothelial cells to to signal for the production of nitric oxide. So they all they all circle back to the EGX, which I just love. Right? It's like you take something you've been doing, and then now all of a sudden you have this you know, opening of your eyes to the the reason why those all make sense as markers. So what are you actually seeing? How long have you been using Arterosol in practice? I've been using it for about three years now. Okay. Okay. And I know you did, you know, you, you, you collected, um, you know, a case series. I mean, when you started to use it, um, did you see evidence on labs and, and, and clinical response that you were actually making a difference in these numbers? I mean, I know you have your foundational lifestyle piece and we, that's essential, the diet yes. and lifestyle, of course, foundational. Of course. So, so, so it, we know that you do that as a, as a functional medicine physician, and then you've layered in over the last three years or two so, and um, you know, what have you seen? So at first, so when I first learned about Arteracil, I came back to my practice and and was like, all right, you know, like I like I generally do to new products, which is super unfair, is I try it in my hardest people, the ones that I haven't been able to get success with, with everything else that I'm doing. So it's like, all right, you think you can add something to the mix here? You're going to perform on the toughest cases. So that's that's what I did. I started with uh, one of my patients. She was 70 at the time. She had a, a really big load, a, a big eccentric plaque burden. So her her um, uh, her her calf, her cardiac calf, looked clean, but her vessels were loaded. Like she had a calcium score, a coronary CT calcium score of like 1,500, which is massive. Wow. So all of her plaque was basically eccentric, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, right? A massive plaque burden, but not obstructive, just high risk for a rupture. So I had been managing her as best I could with all of the tools in in the toolkit, you know, resveratrol, and um, I can't even remember what of the kitchen sink I had thrown at her. Yeah. And then I added in Arteracil and we got like a 50% reduction in her plaque in about six months. And then I was, so obviously I was blown away by that. So I just started adding it to a bunch of the people in my practice that I called the tough nuts. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a, you know, a 50 year old, a high level athlete with a bad family history of cardiovascular disease, you know, multiple sudden cardiac deaths in their, in their fifties. I had um, like a 70 something year old diabetic with known coronary artery disease. And then I had like, you know, this, um, oh, a 62 year old executive with autoimmune disease. So a lot of different reasons why people kind of had this final common pathway of cardiovascular disease. And so I just started adding it. And then when I repeated their studies and we actually did this as a, a retrospective case series, we had on average this greater than 50% reduction in plaque. And I had multiple years of 
carotid evaluations on all of these patients and most of them I was able to stabilize so stop their plaque from continuing to progress and continuing to accumulate fantastic accomplishment in a few yeah. of them I had some regression maybe I think on average it, the number was came out to be about 22 percent then we add in our Tiracil and we're way over 50 percent plaque regression like literal extraordinary regression. that's yeah. extraordinary it wasn't it really was extraordinary so you know, when something can come in and perform in those most difficult cases, that really gets your attention. And so from a lab perspective, we did go back and analyze the laboratory numbers. And the only one that was statistically significant in that small, our case series was just 10. So hard to achieve statistical significance with such a small number. But but for LPPLA2, that lipoprotein, mm -hmm. uh, phospholipase A2, the inflammatory marker that's released from the, the foam cells. So when the macrophage eats up the oxidized LDL and becomes a foam cell and releases that LPPLA2. That's how it, we use it as that marker of vascular inflammation. That did actually significantly reduce in the patients who were taking Arteracil. Now, heart, it's a retrospective series, right? So causality, difficult to say, but just understanding the mechanism, it makes sense that if we're restoring and repairing the EGX, that we're replacing that nonstick lining, we're going to be it, you know, changing the ability, those bare patches become sticky spots where leukocyte adhesion occurs, platelet adhesion occurs, cholesterol or LDL adhesion occurs. All of those are the gateway to those things getting through the endothelium and into the vascular wall where they create that inflammatory process that ultimately ends up in plaque development. Just really fabulous work. And I encourage you, I mean, you know, 10 10 of your toughest cases, I know, you know, in the world of, of, of uh, control, you know, large clinical trials, it's small, but it's, you know, in the context of clinical practice, it's, it's extraordinary that you put this together and you did such careful analysis. And I just really applaud you because um, I know it's challenging to track and do it. And I hope that you write it up. And if I can support you in any way, I don't have a, you need a postdoc in your practice, <laughs> but I, I, I would love to see it published. It's, it's really important what you found. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I know we've been, I have, um, interns in my practice that do a medical scribe internship in their gap year between college and while they're applying to medical school. And I just started doing that a few years ago and it has, it has really brought in another layer of, you know, enthusiasm and, and really interesting expertise in these young, young doctors to be. And so we've been trying to work on improving our data collection processes and getting some of those ducks in a row so that we can start to hopefully put out some of this clinical research, even if it's just descriptive like this, yes. right? Showing yes. what we did and, and what changed and, yes. and what the, you know, what our understanding is of why that happened. I think that's important info to get out. Oh, it's extraordinary. I mean, you're speaking to the choir. I published in 2011, a collection of case studies. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely, 100%, 100%. And I, you know, we're continuing to do research looking at um, epigenetic changes, DNA methylation, and we just have a finished a cohort of seven that I'm, I, I would like to publish as a case series. So I really applaud you and support you. Anything I can do in that, in that place to kind of elevate what you've done. It's very important. It's the first line of, of inquiry and mm -hmm. we've got to get it out there, even though, you know, some 
trialists perhaps poo poo it. It's 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 essential. Yeah, it's um, the first step. It's the first step. So I've got a uh, you know I've got more questions for you. I wanna so. I want to eventually guess to your thoughts, but before that, I'm going to throw in some other questions around cardiovascular disease, but eventually I also, so I don't forget, want to put a pin in thinking about where you're using Arteracil elsewhere. I had an awesome conversation with Helen Messier and we ended up just sort of looking at it mechanistically and thinking about using it in intestinal permeability and in other, you know, for other um, indications. And I, I, I would like to see if you've moved there, but before we go there, I first want to ask you how you're dosing arteriosol in these tough patients and in general, you know, are using the recommended dosing? So answer that one first. Okay. So I do typically use the recommended dosing, which is one cap BID twice a day. Some patients get weary of the multiple times per day dosing, and I have even used it as just two caps once daily and seem to get equivalently good results. But what's been studied is one cap twice a day. So if we wanna stick with, with that. In neuropathy in particular, which uh, there has been a study on neuropathy, diabetic neuropathy specifically, and in neuropathy, it seems to be more effective at a higher dose. So that's two caps BID in that instance. There it's are not bad. You know, no, no, it's yeah. not bad at all there. You know, when you start expanding the way you look at the mechanisms by which these disease states develop and you're thinking about it from the perspective of, you know, the organ and the tissue can't be healthy without healthy blood flow. And then that whole cascade that we talked about at the beginning with the endothelium and the endothelial glycocalyx. So you start to just see potential for arteriosil or, or attention to the EGX everywhere, right? Yeah. In, in, you know, renal disease, renal insufficiency, in, um, you know, in visual change, like mm, macular yes. degeneration is a target that we've talked about looking at. And, you know, these are all speculative at this point, yeah. but it makes sense yes. that these things that have to do with aberrancies in the health of the vessels are going to at least in some part be improved by attention to the egx which is the thing that keeps the vessel healthy any anecdotal experience you can share in using it in renal disease or macular degeneration or you know any other condition where you've used it sort of quote off label yeah, so I've seen improvements in um, the uh, in the MACR, the macroalbumin creatinine ratio. I have seen. Oh, and another yes. place that it performs well, uh, literally and figuratively, is in erectile dysfunction. Actually, which wow. ultimately is a plumbing problem. Yes, and so there definitely you see benefit, clinical benefit, and. Um, trying to think off the top of my head. Those are probably the main ones where I can, where I can, where I feel certain that I have seen a direct impact of arteriosil. Others are more subtle, I think, right? You're, you see overall improvement or you see reductions in, you know, it's kind of like asking, how do we, how do we prove that, you know, this or that lifestyle intervention has improved this particular individual's you know, health, life, or longevity. And, and short of the, you know, ep 
um, the epigenetic methylation, which now we are able to start proving it. I love your work in that. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think that's going to be another interesting target, right? Like doing, yes. you know, looking at it yeah. before and then bringing in an intervention like arteriosil and then looking at what happens afterwards because yeah. all of these things fill up that bucket of inflammation and of resilience. Yeah, absolutely. So I just, I, I love the other ways that you're using it. So diabetic neuropathy, renal uh, disease, mac, macular degeneration, erectile dysfunction, and still dosing it as, as directed on the label in yes. general, in general, so simple. Yeah. yeah. And then just, you know, from a practical standpoint, you know, people, people can get a little bit weary of their supplement regimens. Yeah. And so I have, again, off-label used it at a more maintenance level when I don't have, maybe I don't have active plaque, but I have, you know, family history of risk and, mm -hmm. you know, the inflammation markers look good, but we still want to add this in. You know, I will sometimes drop it down to one cap daily just to keep people engaged, keep those building blocks available to repair the EGX as damage occurs with, you know, with what we do in life. Um, sometimes I've done pulse dosing when, when, you know, cost is an issue for people. So most of the studies that Calroy Scientific has done using Arteracil have been looking at eight week treatment intervals. And that's where we've had like profound reduction in that vulnerable plaque, the, that necrotic fatty core in the plaque or reduction in um, plaque in the aorta in an animal study. So these shorter term interventions Amazing. have these big results. So I'll do it for two months and then have them maybe stop for two months and then bring it back for two months and just kind of keep pulsing it at what I know has been proven to work. Just anything to be creative, to keep them engaged and keep them using it. So in your retrospective um, analysis, was it an eight week interval that you saw these really big shifts? <laughs> no, that's funny that you asked that. No, <laughs> it was a hot mess. So because when I started off recommending Arteracil to these patients, it was, it was, you know, in my mind, kind of experimental. Mm. And then it wasn't until I had, you know, that first couple of cases where I had these profound results that I decided to go back and study, you know, to study those patients at this point in time, which was about six months or so after I had started recommending it. And when we looked at how people had used it, most of them mm. had used it as directed, but oh my gosh, some of them had used it like, you know, for just two months and then hadn't used it again, or right. had used it sporadically over the six month period. And so initially when we were looking at the data, I thought, well, this isn't even going to be useful. And then I started thinking, well, you know, this is real life. This is, this is the yeah. reality of clinical practice. I mean, patients don't always do exactly what we ask them to do yeah. despite our best efforts. Yeah. And so it, even in that real world reflection, we still had really amazing results. That's just so cool. I appreciate you uh, saying that because it is true. And you are still wrapping your head around its power. And so I can imagine that how you speak to your patients about it now has changed. I mean, yes. we, can, we can improve adherence considerably when we're really clear of how essential an intervention is. And if yes. our, you know, and our patient actually gets that, I think we can see adherence rates really skyrocket. So initially you were still sort of putting your toe in the pond. And I'm thrilled, you know, that people hung with it long enough and that you were able to go back and look and see these extraordinary findings. 
Yeah, uh, exactly. There's a huge difference between saying, hey, let's try this. The research right. behind it is really amazing, which is still motivating for people, yes. especially people like this, who you've been working with for a long time. They're super engaged already. Yes, and, yes. And but they the trust difference you. between that and, hey, I've had these unbelievable results and I want the same thing for you. Those are two very different deliveries. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, just, I'm really excited for your work. It's, it's just really cool. Um, so, you know, I think you've already alluded, alluded to this, but, you know, the continuum of plaques and risk profiles in general, um, the different type of plaque, you're just, I mean, I, I, you're seeing extraordinary benefit sort of regardless of the starting point or the risks. Yeah, we are across across all different varieties of of plaque and you know, mind you in the in the clinical setting, I'm really for the most part just looking at the carotid CIMT. Mm-hmm. So we don't have like the research level definition or detail like in a one of the studies that was done by Calroy on Arteracil looking at vulnerable plaque, and in fact, the, the study that helped it get patented for the regression of vulnerable plaque, that uses a technique called MRI plaque view. Mm-hmm. And right now, that's still only available in the research setting. And it will, I'm sure, eventually have a clinical application because it gives you so much more detail about the morphology of the plaque. But so I don't really have the capacity in my practice to see, you know, does it look necrotic? Does it look, you know, this, that or the other? We're really only able to measure the the burden of plaque. And but we did see we can see whether plaque is soft or heterogeneous or calcified. And it was very interesting because we saw a shift of the plaque morphology into predominantly heterogeneous and nobody really knows what conclusion to draw from that we certainly didn't see that that created any increased risk of events or anything like that that we had no adverse events at all in any Mm -hmm. of the studies actually which is an important thing to point out is the Mm -hmm. safety of arteriosil is phenomenal like literally no contraindications and no no adverse events to speak of so I, um, but I thought that that was very interesting because if nothing else, it at least illustrates that we're definitely getting remodeling of the plaque. And then when the more detailed analyses are done with MRI plaque view, that is exactly what we see that there's significant remodeling within the plaque itself. Just very exciting. Um, so just as we, as we head towards home, I, you know, I wanted to just touch on I want to see where 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 we're headed with with EGX and maybe for future research directions, et cetera. But you made an important point about nutrient delivery and needing a functional endothelial glycocalyx for that to happen. So here you are treating your patient with awesome full-on functional medicine, and they're on a perfect diet, and they're you know, taking extra nutrients as, as, as you've prescribed, you know, and you see evidence for, et cetera, but they've got a really damaged endothelial glycocalyx. I mean, would you say, I mean, that, that that's a fundamental piece. It's almost like healing an intestinal barrier that, you know, nutrient delivery is greatly compromised. So would you, would you, could you say, do you suspect, you know, just clinically that repairing EGX helps your foundational functional interventions actually work better? 
Oh boy. I, I mean, intellectually, I would expect so. That's a really hard thing to measure because, yeah. you know, like so many things in functional medicine, we're doing so many things at once, which is what makes yeah. proving our work challenging. But it, it certainly makes sense that if you're improving the functional capacity of one of your primary transport mechanisms, that it, it only stands to reason that, of course, you're going to have improvement in delivery. Yes. Yeah, it does. It, it really does. And maybe, yeah, maybe one day we'll be able to analyze that. I don't know, look at, you know, certain tissue levels of nutrients and see if we can, you know, visualize a, a change based on treat on, on treatment with arteriosol. Yeah, that would be, that would be cool, but a far off, perhaps a far off <laughs> pipe dream. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Something we can talk about at the IFMAIC in the chat this year or whatever. Um, so what are you most excited around? I mean, there's lots here to be really thrilled. And, you know, where do you see research heading? Are you going to continue to involve your clinic in research? I mean, where's, where's this, this, this world going, the world of endothelial care and arteriosal and, you know, and some of the science? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's heading to be a foundational piece of what we do, just like the microbiome and helping to improve and augment the health of the microbiome has far reaching effects in, you know, immunology and neurology and all these different fields. I think the same is going to be true of the EGX. I think because of what I do so much in my practice, I'm really excited by the idea that focusing on the EGX and the health of it has the capacity for such phenomenal plaque regression. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it creates such a compelling target for therapy and for intervention. But the ability to impact things like neuropathy, which is so debilitating and yes. difficult to treat. Yes. I think that's amazing. And we talked a little bit about macular degeneration. If we could, you know, have something that we can do that could impact the ability for people to maintain their sight and their vision, like the the big, the big possibilities are really life-changing for people. And I think, you know, it's it's like you said at the beginning, this relatively unknown structure has been discovered. And now we're, you know, now we're opening up to this world of huge impact on human health. And I just think there's so much more to be discovered here. Well, I certainly hope you and I have another conversation and I'm sure that our listeners would like that to be recorded and on new frontiers or some in, in some way, be able to disseminate it out to um, clinicians and, and, you know, just regular people alike. I, it has been great, Christine. You're such a font of knowledge and you're doing such good work in your clinic. And again, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And for the listeners who are interested in learning more about Arteracil, they can go to arteracil.com forward slash new frontiers. And Arteracil is spelled A-R-T-E-R-O-S-I-L. So arteracil.com slash new frontiers. And there's a discount available for listening to the podcast and lots of great information, including links to all of the research if you want to learn more about it. And we will splash that far and wide on our show notes and on our email send as well. So if you didn't get a pencil and write that down, just head over to the show notes page and you'll see a link to it there. Again, Dr. Burke, thank you so much.
Thank you, Kara.